So here we are in a system not designed for women, not designed for millennials, not designed for inclusion. A system that is finally changing. Let's get familiar. Let's talk about business. Let's talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about womanhood. I'm Leslie Gray, bringing you passionate, informed guests to talk about millennial women building wealth, power, and influence in our modern era. The future for women and wealth is brighter than ever. Welcome to Love and Dividends. Careers. As women, we, and as millennial women, we are certainly not the first generation of women to have careers. Big shout out to the women who came before us. I want to talk about the importance of careers in general. When I first graduated from law school and was working, I have to say I really did enjoy uh, in conversations being able to just say, I'm a lawyer. I didn't realize how much I appreciated it till a friend of mine who was still finding their career path said, like, that just must be so nice. Whenever I'm asked, I have to, like, do this long explanation, and I'm doing lots of stuff, and I love what I do, but it's just not a clean answer. I don't get to say I'm a lawyer. It must be so nice for you to say I'm a lawyer. The irony is that in a lot of situations, I don't say I'm a lawyer. Unless you've been a lawyer, you might not know this. But when you tell people, I am a lawyer, a lot of people get their backs up. A lot of people have some preconceived notions about lawyers, some of which may be true. I'm not even here to deny it. So I went through a phase socially. Also, if you're a woman and you have an intense profession, such as engineering or law, you will get told a million times, careful, people find you intimidating. Oh, you're a bit much. Oh, people are going to be scared. And even though every part of you is like, fuck that shit, I'm going to own my power. Another part of you might be like, okay, but here's the thing. I'm a little bit tired of this and I just want to go out and have a nice time and I don't want to have to like have a whole thing where I say I'm a lawyer and the person ducks out because they're, you know, I don't know, scared, intimidated. So for a small period of time, when asked what I would do, I may not have said I'm a lawyer and I may not have said I'm an engineer. For a while, when I was out socially, someone asked what I would do, I would say, I am a stand-up comedian. Now, hopefully, if you're enjoying this podcast, you're like, that seems about right. Leslie, you're hilarious. It's so fun to listen to this podcast. You basically are a stand-up comedian. I, in fact, am not. I actually did, in high school, um, take a comedic improv course with Young People Players in Toronto. Shout out. And the feedback I received was, yeah, you're kind of funny, but the thing is you find yourself funnier than everyone else and you are just on stage laughing at your own material. Um, So it's just not going to work. See, I'm laughing right now. And the good news about the podcast is I have an editor who can take that out and work around it. And I can pause and just laugh at myself. There's not an audience watching in real time. For stand-up comedy, that is not the case. You cannot laugh at your own jokes, I learned. So I knew this was not a career I could actually have. Guess I'll have to be a lawyer. But what I would say to people is that I was a stand-up comedian, to which people would be like, oh, have I ever seen you? Like, would I know any of your work? And I would always say, 
Oh, yeah. Actually, last year I opened for Amy Schumer. Like, I would say it casually, and, I, and I'd, and i like, in my mind, I didn't even tell this backstory, but in my mind telling it, I had a whole backstory that Amy Schumer had discovered me, and we're best friends. <laughs> Hi, Amy. I don't even want to ever meet her, actually. I'm too nervous. And she was like, why don't you come open for me on a few shows? And then we'll, like, drink after, and we just had so much fun. And I just do, like, a little quick set, just warm up the audience for her. That was my dream made-up job. I did not come up uh, with this concept about lying about being a lawyer. If you ever watched the 90s, early 2000 TV sitcom, which I believe is now back, Will and Grace, where Will plays a corporate lawyer. Yes, the same kind of law I practice. He and I have a lot in common. Also, the actor who plays him is Canadian. He attends a wedding with his bestie, Grace, and beforehand, he tells her, he's like, I, I'm so sick of telling people I'm a lawyer. Then people don't want to talk to me. Everyone hates lawyers. I'm not doing it. So he tells everyone he is a tennis pro. And because it's a situation comedy, we're of course now in a situation where comedy ensues. So everyone's asking follow-up questions and like trying to book him. And, you know, he almost gets caught in a lie. And he thinks the person is covering for him, who's also said they're a tennis pro. And he's like, thank you so much. And the other guy's like, oh, I'm lying too. <laughs> and it turns out tennis pro is just the generic lie you tell. when you don't want to admit what you actually do for a living. Which comes back full circle to how interesting careers are how important they are to our identity, how we spend so much time doing them. And of course, because this is a financial podcast, that is possibly the hugest source of your income. On the podcast, we try to get into a lot of different mixes. We encourage saving. We encourage investing. We encourage entrepreneurship. So we're not here to say your career is the biggest source, but we know that statistically it is. We know that it's that kind of security. We know that when people create things like emergency funds, they're looking at, you know, six months salary. Why? Because what if you were ever terminated? It can be really devastating. And so it's impossible to talk about finances without talking about careers. And then we start talking about women in careers. Because there are different issues for this part of the population that, again, hasn't been in a lot of industries for a long time. And even industries where they have been for a while, such as law, they haven't necessarily been at the top, if ever. A couple of years ago, I wrote a paper about the boards of the publicly traded company in Toronto, list on the Toronto Stock Exchange, so that would be Canadian companies. There is a requirement you disclose who is on your board, and if there are any women, other diversity groups, board changing, etc. And because that disclosure requirement is there, we knew the numbers. And while this was a couple years ago, less than 40% had even one woman on their board of directors. I'm not talking about 50-50. I'm not talking about, oh, less than 40% didn't have 50-50. It was like, oh, you public company could not find one qualified female to be on your board. How can that be possible if schools are still 50% women, if the educated population qualified to train this 
is there. These are the things I'm sort of rumbling with. And I think where a lot of women get caught is early on career progression and negotiation. But that's just my thinking of what happens to a lot of women's careers. We've heard it called the glass ceiling, the sticky floor, the lack of representation. But whatever it is, we have been working for a long time. And the numbers still just don't seem to reflect that. Do I think this podcast can change that overnight? Of course not. But I'd love to arm our listeners, our female listeners, even our millennial listeners. Uh, Our male listeners may say, and I know this from, from my male friends and colleagues say, you know what, the same thing's happening to me. So I'm, I'm all for anyone listening feeling empowered to advocate for themselves, negotiate for themselves. And maybe then we can create the kind of work and career climates where we don't need to keep saying work-life balance and trying to find boundaries where we know they're not going to happen with laptops, with cell phones. I'm so jealous of the last generation that could leave at five or six and, you know, it's rude to call the house during dinner. Like, they, you'd leave your stuff there. It's so different now that your phone connects you to work. The expectations are so different, and while we think it makes it more convenient, because maybe you can answer from anywhere, it means there's so few boundaries I think if nothing else, these conversations are really important. But there is a tendency for employers to shut them down before they even happen. To take personal offense, the the number of times I've said, by the way, none of this is personal. It's a system. And one I'd like to see shift for all of us, but the number of people are able to hold space for those conversations, hear them, make the change. It's few and far between. But maybe it's getting bigger and better and louder and clearer. And I hope if you're listening today, you feel empowered to have them more. Because the more of us who speak out, the more things can change. Uh, We have Zoe here from Orbis. Orbis is a company that connects schools with employers, which I think is amazing. It's online. It is such a great resource because that transition from student to career is so important. Education is such a critical part of any career. Hope you enjoy our episode. Welcome, Zoe, to the Love and Dividends podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be chatting with you. This has like been in the works for like six months or so that we wanted to collaborate and do something together. It has. It's good to be here. Tell our audience a little bit about what you do about Orbis Magnet. And I know you also want to talk about the outcome Campus Connect. So that's how we met. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone about it? Absolutely. So Orbis has 20 years um, working within higher education to support um, universities and colleges with technology and uh, and strategy in the delivery of career readiness to students and recent graduates. So experiential learning, uh, for example, with our outcome platform, um, we facilitate experiential learning delivery, um, the tracking of it, cataloging, streamlining of entire programs and initiatives that support students to get get career ready while studying at school. We also have the Outcome Campus Connect platform, which is um, a platform that connects 
employers across Canada directly with skill development and uh, job opportunities. Um, what's unique about Outcome Campus Connect is it's a free platform uh, for all universities and colleges across Canada, for all students and recent graduates funded by the Government of Canada. And it allows employers to specify what uh, what universities or colleges and fields of study they want to hire from. So what that does is it really eliminates the, the anxiety in a job search for a student or recent graduate who's wondering, do I have the experience and are these employers even looking to hire someone like me? When you say experiential uh, learning, you're talking about learning through experience at the job sort of to complement your degree. Is that right? Absolutely. So there's various types of experience. We have internships, co-ops, work placements, applied research. Um, these are opportunities to take what's learned in the classroom and to embed yourself in the active practice of learning. We have actually worked with uh, universities and colleges to configure our platform, our outcome platform, so that it's a brand ready integrated solution. So you wouldn't go to Laurier, for example, and know that they're using outcome, but mm -hmm. the platform that they use to deliver experiential learning is outcome. They created a period of reflection as um, a validating factor for that experience for the student when they participate in the act of learning, whether that is cooperative or an internship or uh, volunteering, they have to have a, a period of reflection where they actively within the system reflect on what was learned and what skills were developed. It helps the supervising staff and faculty to understand how their department is functioning and the impact that they're having. And um, well, it gives the learner the ability to really um, like that metacognition of understanding the value that they've put in and what they're getting out of it. And also the value that you were going to bring to an organization. We all have a tendency to belittle our experience and to, you know, scramble trying to figure out, you know, uh, what we've actually done and how we can help a team uh, or add value. Um, and with Orbis and with with our platform and our and our team and how we work is we're we're supporting uh, higher education to deliver that added value to students to understand how what they're learning in class can be applied towards their career path to access those opportunities and then to really um, articulate that with their employers. Yeah, and that can be a really tricky transition. I mean, I think for a lot of students and I think beyond students, for any sort of professional, you have this toolbox of skills and then you're sort of thinking, well, how does that fit into the box of this career? Which I often say is like the tail wagging the dog. I mean, you you find yourself then getting a bit sticky of, well, I think I can then say that this means this. You know, it's funny the skills a student may have that they may not showcase because someone hasn't said to showcase it. Whereas as an employer, um, sometimes you're you know what you need. Sometimes you're not sure because. What, what we all really need is bright, capable, enthusiastic, mm -hmm. courageous individuals. You know, so many people who go back to school and continue education. I, I think life is about learning. Yeah, I really like what you said about, you know, sort of how to add value, and how to help a team. 
we look at hard skills and soft skills. And I think that term, I, I'm a close follower of Simon Sinek, who says that when we, when we say soft skills, you know, we're talking about empathy, compassion, cultural citizenship, being a global citizen. What we're really talking about is human skills. There's a humanizing of, you know, the environment in a workplace environment that I think is not only um, integral to a company functioning optimally, especially within a pandemic, uh, when we're all working remotely, uh, you know, we're talking uh, through a computer and that's how I talk to most people. It's through the computer or through the phone. So right now, more than ever, and, you know, with the fragility of, you know, humanity and the fact that, you know, we're all going through this universal struggle, we look at the human skills as well as being important to, you know, how we find our place in life and how we find our place in our career. And the the relationship there is obviously important if you're looking at the big picture as a candidate for any opportunity. It's not just an interview of the of the candidate, but of the employer. At Orbis, I'm I'm fortunate because I work in an environment that really stresses empathy. That's one of the um, underlying values of how the business operates and how they perceive success is we call it eye care innovation, obviously, communication, accuracy, respect, and empathy. I think in this day and age, the skills that you gain are going to be invaluable to an employer, but it's also about fit. And so with Outcome or Outcome Campus Connect, it's data driven. So for the employers to be able to say, you know what, I really, I really appreciate this program at th this university or college. And I'm looking for someone with these skills. Um, they can even specify the year that they're of study that they're looking for. It helps to eliminate the guesswork. And I think when you have a conversation and right now those interviews would probably be online, you're knowing that you, you're already on more of a, a common ground uh, where, you know, the veil of uncertainty about, you know, qualifications or skills or experience or where someone has, you know, what they've really studied or experienced or participated in is lifted. And, and you're able to, to start knowing that you're empowered to pursue that opportunity. You've touched on empathy a few times. I love it too. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, sort of expert on, well, vulnerability, but through that compassion, empathy. How would you define or describe it? For me, um, I think the way we define words is often personal, right? So it comes comes down to our personality, our own experience and values and, and you know, hopes and dreams. <laughs> totally. So, um, I think with empathy, where I see it is, across the board, being just first and foremost, a good human. So mm. when we discuss kindness, it's being kind to people who can't do anything for you. And when we discuss empathy, it's the idea that every, all of us have feelings and not, we're not always going to be on our A game. I think if you look at social media right now, there is a bit of an epidemic where everyone appears to be on their A game and really no one is. So true. I think that's really challenging. I it, it makes me feel, it's one of the few areas in life where I feel fortunate to be aging because because I think <laughs> growing, up, growing up is hard enough. You know, I don't know what I would have done if I just thought everyone was having a wonderful time all the time. But so it's really this idea of recognizing that we're all human and that we're not always going to have good days and that, you know, the human condition is fragile and we have to respect each other as human beings before we judge a reaction or, um, you know, we look for 
our perception of something. I think you have to look beyond what you perceive to be a reaction or what you're hoping to get from someone and understand where they're coming from. And I think that's empathy is really feeling for other people and just being a good human being. What I've been thinking the last couple weeks, just with Ontario being in yet another pandemic lockdown and it's, it's a tough time for a lot is I think at the end, at whatever the end of this is, and, and from a career perspective, I think it'll change a lot of things, but whenever we come out of this, I think there's going to have to be a whole generous amount of forgiveness from everyone by everyone for everyone. That's what keeps coming up with me. I hope everyone will be very generous with their forgiveness and remember that forgiveness is not too much to ask. Absolutely. And I think if you look at technology in that space and, you know, being someone that works in the technology space, um, things move really quickly. You know, we're, we're speaking about um, technology doing amazing things for humanity and the development of it and how it can support us, especially, you know, we look at right now, what would we do if we couldn't connect? But then there's also this underlying conversation, which is integral to, you know, how we develop and move forward, which is, you know, what is the technology doing to support humanity, to support and work with empathy and help us to cultivate a deeper understanding of each other while we're able to um, grow and expand our awareness of just general knowledge that's available to us. You You can ask any question and it's available on Google. But I think it also has an instantaneous response, like ordering something on Amazon and it's here the next day. It's very fulfilling, but we have to also slow down and recognize, you know, that we are human beings and that we need to pause and think things through and connect uh, beyond just a text message. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I see it in my career. Of course, I provide professional services. I mean, I essentially provide advice. My role is counsel. Yeah, two things I was thinking of. One, it's true. There's something about seeing it in writing, even on a Google search that makes people like, well, this is the law. And and sometimes as a lawyer, like, well, there's a couple things to consider. That whole thing is so interesting because your search will reveal different results than mine as we're now learning. Right. Yeah. There's some biases there. And two, the other thing I was thinking as you were saying that is, um, yeah, the in-person communication is so important. The thing is, if I can see the person, their body language, the inflection when they say hi, yeah, I know. I know whether it's like, hi, did you want to get a coffee? Like, how was your weekend? Or whether they're like, hi, I think I did something and I need help. Like, those are different yeah. ends of the high spectrum. spectrum. I'm someone that loves to be um, in an environment with other people and I feed off of the energy mm-hmm. and I enjoy interacting with people. And so for me, I found the pandemic personally challenging in, in that exact capacity is that you, if someone says, hello, good morning. And I'm going, okay, is this a good, yeah, <laughs> like that could mean anything. Good weirdly. morning. I'm, I'm going to type carefully. Totally. <laughs> it's funny. You can, you could analyze a response that is the simplest form. Whereas if you're in person, that wouldn't happen. And I think also, you know, with, with Outcome Campus Connect, speaking of, uh, you know, developing uh, with humans in mind and, and with that access to opportunity, what we're doing is trying to democratize that. So that's a word that is used far too often right now, especially by um, companies in our field. But it's the idea that, you know, it's no longer 
who you know, obviously that's going to be supportive and important, you know, grab a coffee with someone who inspires you, um, you know, find someone on LinkedIn or through a friend of a friend with Outcome Campus Connect, you know, that the employers are looking for you from your field of study and they're looking at those credentials and, and, and those skills as their uh, validating factors for, you know, getting you in the door. So. I think it really helps to level that playing field. You know, I remember graduating. It was uh, not a good time in the economy. And right. and it was, you know, I came from a fashion marketing background and was trying to work in fashion and had visions of wearing amazing clothes. And, you know, you're just, you're so excited. And, and it's a difficult environment to, to find a job. It would have been so amazing in, in my personal experience to have that opportunity to know that the jobs that I was looking at, employers were also looking for me. Totally. And I think it's such a critical time. I'm so glad your work does the connection because the connections, and I think you've had a similar experience, but the, some of the connections I made through applying for my first job, through working as an engineer, I then went back to law school through, I mean, I did a ton of networking sort of throughout law school, whether it was called that or not. I think sometimes students get sticky when I'd mentor students and they'd be like, so you want me to go this network and schmooze? I'm, I'm not fake. I'm so authentic. And I was like, yeah, I need you to be the most authentic you've ever been. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's incredible advice. Yeah. Like, and so many people would be like, I don't really do the networking thing. There's almost like a morality to it where it's like, I'm above this fake schmoozy thing. And I'm like, it is in fact the opposite, but it was like, no networking is being as authentic as possible and being open to possibilities would be my mm -hmm. view. To me, it's both taking the action for sure of applying, of getting your resume together of the exercise. But my encouragement to anyone starting this or transitioning this would be, you don't have to be too focused on the thing you're applying for. Mm -hmm. It's sort of that the joy is in the journey. If you are standing in your truth, I think that the opportunities will come. So yes. you're doing the prep work. And I think what you provide really is that prep work, whether it leads immediately to the opportunity, which it might, because mm -hmm. you connect to employers or whether it is you just constantly building up your brand, your network, your experience. You know, the adage of, you know, life's a journey, not a destination, that, that, that is inherently true. I think um, we all, back to this social media, you know, someone who uses it for my job and appreciates what it does. It, there's also this element of looking at people who've just become success stories overnight. And there, there aren't really, really lasting success stories that happen overnight at Orbis. Our vision is a future of fulfilled potential. If you really boil that down, it's through the fulfilled potential of every graduate. When you look at that grand statement, a future of fulfilled potential, that the idea behind any vision is that it's not really achievable. You're always going to be working towards a future of fulfilled potential. You're always going to be pushing the dial, moving a little farther. And in my personal experience, in my career, has been anything but linear. I'm someone that learns by doing. So I truly appreciate that each of my experiences over time, the good, the bad, all of the in-between has helped get me to where I am today that has helped shape who I am. And I think, you know, if you go through life and you don't have a job that you don't like, you, great. I mean, I, I've never met anyone who's had that. Maybe one, I, I don't remember, <laughs> but it's so rare, right? So those 
teach you what you want and what you don't want. And I think knowing what you don't want and knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at is incredibly valuable to uh, landing where you want to go. Yeah. The overnight success, I think is so funny. One of the pe like just the whole concept of it. And you're right in our instant gratification world. It is like this person, they were a nobody. Now they're somebody. Mm -hmm. and it's so rarely true. You know, when I think of even celebrity culture, I think of someone like for example, Kim Kardashian, like mm -hmm. is blow up overnight success and she doesn't really work and she doesn't do anything sometimes is the narrative. Mm -hmm. And while she's like, the thing was, I was the personal assistant to Paris Hilton for a decade. Like yeah. I slowly, we ran a store. We got connections that way in LA. We started a reality TV show. We weren't even sure what it was. Mm -hmm. From that, I built this. Like I actually work all day, every day. Like I'm at meetings, I'm at shoots. I was building a brand. Another yeah. one I love is comedian Amy Schumer said the same thing where suddenly when she had like her train wreck movie and she had all these specials and everyone's like, look at you, you've come out of nowhere. And she's like, I've been <laughs> in comedy clubs for 15 years. Like mm -hmm. I'm not out of nowhere. I have been harnessing my craft. That's the preparation. Mm -hmm. so that one and Bill Gates, and that's his quote, I believe, like another one where he's like, I was coding in a garage, building computers with my buddy. I think for me, when there's the overnight success, it's like, right, that was when the like the spark of opportunity came to you. That was like your moment. And to give credit to the quote overnight success stories, they took it, they stepped into it with courage, conviction, et cetera. But I don't think there's any overnight successes that haven't put in a ton of prep work or to your point, if there are, they're perhaps not prepared for it. It's sort of the metaphor of the lottery winners versus the very wealthy. What the statistics would suggest is if you're given a large sum of money all at once, you haven't done the prep work, then five years you'll lose it, period. This is for lottery winners of the full range. Whereas again, if you've been building a business, building your financial wherewithal, putting in a foundation, then when the big opportunity hits, which might be both the, maybe it's the fame, maybe it's the business and, and probably it is a big paycheck. You're ready. The groundwork is there. You know how to save, how to invest, what to spend on, you know, what upgrades you can make in your life. But then in terms of the dream job, inevitably, if you're growing, then your dream job is going to constantly, you know, I think if you're lucky, it's constantly upgraded or it may drastically change. You know, I have uh, an anecdote about that. I, yes. I, I dreamed that I was going to work in PR and work in an agency. And, you know, you have these visions of what that's going to look like. I also dreamed when I was, you know. Were you Samantha Jones from Sex and the City a little bit? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's seven. I thought I was going to drive a Corvette when I was like 19, probably, you know, like, yeah, you know, just... that's what they all did on Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> totally. <laughs> what happened? So, yeah. you know, and then, so I was working at this PR agency down on King Street. It was a great learning experience, but you know, I was a little like a fish out of water. It was my first time working in an agency and there were extremely long hours. You know, I remember going into the office at seven thirty or seven in the morning and working until, you know, past midnight and it just came down to a matter of what do you value and 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 I think if you're speaking about, you know, that that lottery example of of you know losing everything in five years and you're talking about monetary gain, you also have to look at what in your life brings you happiness and security because 
finances are very important to that. You can have an incredible uh, high paying job. It's not going to sustain you. It's not going to feed your soul, your spirit. Your So, you know, it's like that nothing is going to complete you but yourself, whether that's another person or that is your dream job or your uh, dream salary. I think this idea that you're discussing about uh, receiving lump sums of money and you know all of these uh, benchmarks really, if if we boil it down, it's like it's knowing yourself and what's going to make you happy as you get older. You know, you hopefully, um, what I found get a little bit more comfortable in your own skin, more self aware as to you know what you, what you bring to the table and what you're what you're not good at. Not striving for perfection, not striving for the lottery. No, you know, that's nice. Uh, if you want to win, obviously you have to play. <laughs> Pull that from, uh, I think that's an eat, pray, love. <laughs> but, you know, but... buy it, my son, <laughs> buy yourself a ticket. <laughs> you know, that idea though, you know, you obviously put yourself out there, do what you have to do to work towards your dreams. But don't expect that once you get there, everything's going to click, life's going to make sense. Nothing is going to complete you but yourself. I think if you're evolving, that's just an ongoing, if you're changing, the things that complete you are also going to change as well. Right. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is the work is how do you complete yourself? I think the benefit is once you do, then interestingly, a lot of things will show up in better ways because when you're able to walk in, whether it's to a negotiation, to a job, to a new opportunity complete, then you see everything else as a bonus. And Mm -hmm. then it gets more exciting. Yeah. In terms of what you said about knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at, I so agree. I think there often isn't enough encouragement to try things out, especially in the workplace. There's a like, you were hired to do this job, do it. But I think at the end of the day, you, yeah, you can be good at, really good at something and able to make income off it that you don't love And there is a magic that happens when you find the thing you're good at, that you enjoy so much, you're motivated to do it and you don't even recognize what a gift it is to a team, to an industry, to the world. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is so the sweet spot that I'm still, you know, trying to find. Yeah. And I mean, I also know people that don't love their jobs, but they, they love their income or they're very happy with what it allows and affords them to do in their personal life. And they just don't have the expectation that, you know, they're going to make this dramatic positive impact through their job in the world. I mean, it, I think a lot of these things are about expectations and, and, and about understanding that your experiences that build, you know, where you're going are choices. They take investment, they take time, they take self-reflection. It's about aligning them, not to sound preachy, but aligning your life is not easy to do. Like this idea of balance, like all of it, if you believe wholeheartedly that we all have gifts to offer, we all have something to give and those things can evolve over time. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think it gets especially sticky for, I mean, any age of life, but I think especially your twenties is getting to know yourself in such a big way. Mm -hmm. And What's come to mind, because you mentioned Eat, Pray, Love, the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, had a great article out, I'm maybe going to put it in the show notes, but about how you have, like, in life, you can have a vocation, a job, a career, hobbies, 
these different categories. And it's great if all are the same thing, but it's also fine if the job is how you make money and fill your days. And if your vocation, you know, I think that the way she describes it is that's your true calling. You will always be doing your vocation. You know, for me, if my calling is really law, then I'll always sort of be an advocate. I'll always be um, questioning. I'll always be looking at whether it's just or fair, regardless of the job. Some days the job might get to be that. Some days the job, I mean, I do mergers and acquisitions. Some days the job's just signing an agreement. Like, sure. I agree. And I think it can be a lot of pressure on a young person to say, put those all together right now and make it work. I think there's nothing wrong with having different buckets at all stages of life, frankly. There was the Renaissance man. Uh, women back then didn't really get that title. But <laughs> yeah. but nowadays, I think people are so focused on, on putting a label on everything. Uh, you, you know, you are your own brand. Uh, if you want to work in marketing, you better have an amazing social media handle. You mean, everything is about perception. And I think that's a really dangerous place. I think we have to reel it in and go, okay, let's, let's take a look in the mirror and understand that most people are going to have more than one job. They're going to, uh, have more than one interest. Uh, more than more than a handful of strengths, and and especially back to the idea of evolving and uh, working on, you know, being honest with yourself and and following your path. Not easy to do, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that isn't a Renaissance human, especially now nowadays. The the connection and community that's available is, and the openness is there. Uh, which is a, a real positive of, you know, the technology at our disposal and how far we've come to society in supporting uh, the fact that our brains aren't just going to, you know, label us as one thing and our strength as being this one fabulous thing that we just go out to the universe and, and share for eternity, you know, and for the rest of our lives. And that vocation idea is really interesting. I think that's a hard one to land on. So hard. But, but that's the dream, right? I also read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Blink. That idea of I had a couple of seconds to, to, to know if you like someone, to know if you trust them. We're all facing each other and, and we're all having to, I think back to that empathy thing, pause, slow down and take a little bit more time, be more methodical and more empathetic um, towards ourselves whether it's a career journeys or finding our strengths and or vocation and to each other, just because we need to look at each other as support uh, and, and not competition. We certainly are all facing each other, but I, I often think, isn't it funny that now with be it zoom teams, whatever video, we're actually all facing ourselves for the first time. We're all sitting in meetings where you literally can see yourself in a small box. Absolutely. And I'm always of the belief that we are always mirrors for each other. Yes. So, you know, I think even when we're, we're, you're facing someone else at the end of the day, you're facing something in yourself. Um, and then just in terms of what you're saying with more than one job, I completely agree. The studies and the stats would tell us that. But it is a bit different than our parents. I think a lot of people had parents and were raised by adults who really did have one job. Part of the struggle of this is that that's the model that a lot of us were sort of raised on. And to your point about how you, you know, you saw your life, there was this idea of like, I'll go to school, I'll get the degree, then I'll get the job. 
And that's just so not the case for anyone in almost any industry. I can relate to that. I mean, my mom was a real estate agent. Before that, she worked on a show called The Great Debate with Pierre Burton. Oh, cool. um, <laughs> and, but, you know, then made a pivot, decided to have a family. And, and my dad was uh, a teacher. He ended up working um, at that school for like, 30 years and had a wonderful career um, that he found very fulfilling. And that, that just is a rarity. And especially in this day and age, there's a statistic that we're the first generation that are not uh, set up. We're not teed up to be uh, more wealthy than the, than our parents or than the generation before us. However, we have these opportunities that they, they didn't have. And we also have more open as a society, whether it's discussions on, you know, just being a human, um, mental illness, disorders of any kind, like all of these conversations um, and pathways that are available weren't necessarily available to that generation as openly. And especially for groups left out of the mix. Absolutely. When, when you're starting out and I was always told this growing up, like you're not, too, you're not too good to do something. Mm. I think the, the people I admire the most are the leaders who will, you know, roll up their sleeves and, you know, it sounds cliche, but you know, grab the broom or do whatever needs to be done. Oh, I, like, agree. I uh, agree. And, and, you know, be, be in it. And, and that, that speaks to me to a pride and authenticity uh, that, you know, is, is hard to come by. I so agree to never have an ego, never be above work that needs to be done, especially if then your boss is like, well, now I have to do it. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is you do need boundaries. Yeah, yeah. There's like a great scene in the office where there, he's like trying to get Pam to clean the microwave. It's, and it's the original temp played by, uh, she never getting his name, but he's very funny. And he's like, I couldn't possibly even figure out how to clean the microwave. <laughs> I think, you know, Simon Sinek, back to what you're saying, the quote, um, a boss has the title, a leader has the people. <gasps> I, I know. he's <laughs> Wait, I need to repeat. Uh, a, boss a boss has the title, a leader has the people. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's good, right? I believe that wholeheartedly. Uh, how you treat people says a lot about you. I mean, I had a great deal of anxiety in, in, and still sometimes do, but about perception, what other people think, um, you know, and you can, if you're someone who's empathetic or can read people or feels like you can, um, then you're going to notice if, you know, you're aggravating someone by asking a question or by, sure. by, uh, being contradictory. And um, I'm also sure. able to recognize, you know, in the environment I work in, I'm fortunate because they really value opinion and they, Beautiful. they encourage you to speak up and to give your ideas. Innovation is contingent on a bunch of people. It's not just people in the room saying, Oh, we all share the same idea. And then we agree. This is great. Yeah. Brene Brown calls whenever it's like, we all think we all, whatever the hidden army. Yeah. And, and it, and I see it in workplaces all the time where it's like, we've all talked and we think, and mm, it's not me just know that it's we. And it's like, who's she's always like, who is the we? Like one thing you said about the, the whole idea of the, like this wealthier generation of our generation being the first set up not to be as financially secure as the previous one. I really want to just circle back to that. It's a scary one to hear. It's a disappointing one to hear, but I love what you've said about it. And that's why I just want to circle back because but the thinking I had was, well, wait, that's not all there is to life. And what if in spite of that, 
like if we're just defining it by like bank account and rising up, like what if now we are a generation that has better values such that this idea, you know, and to me, the epitome of it would be, I'm just getting into politics, like former president Donald Trump, like so wealthy, powerful, everything, the young wife, like that idea. And I do think our generation's looking at that being like, I, none of that is appealing to me. It's not necessarily better. Um, so being able to say, okay, maybe financially we're not set up for as much success, but it also gives a freedom to be like, oh, then I'm not working for retirement. I'm not just working to contribute 10% a year to my RSP so I can retire whenever. I'm working to find something sustainable. I'm working to find wealth sustainable. I think that stat, as scary as it was at first, opened up a whole new discussion of like, okay, then if we're not on that track and trajectory, what do we want the system to look like and how could it be for us such that cumulatively we have a better life and then when you talk about innovation that to me is one of the big things that gives a better life absolutely and i think if you look historically you know at our at the boomer generation that you know in the 60s and 70s uh you know generationally there were huge movements towards equality and you know against yes. war and you know our parents generation was in a boom where it's a, right. it's a matter of like the framework that's set up the economic and uh, political uh climate that is laid before a generation some of it is circumstantial, like like what you're saying, and, and some of it is is choices. But it, but oftentimes our choices are reflective of our environment and what's available to us and what we deem to be normal or what we are prepared uh, and feel is an expectation that we can actually meet. We we learn from each other. We also are the children of a generation that was generally uh, successful. That was you know gave opportunities. And without that, we wouldn't have the ability to be where we are now. There are definitely um, things to be grateful for. And then there are lessons to be learned as well. We're so fortunate to be in a position where we have this technology and this interconnection and this awareness, this movement towards spirituality and self-awareness and, and developing yourself outside of just your wealth. And how can you connect the two? And these conversations are happening and uh, new avenues for entrepreneurs to uh, you know come up with wild ideas and and have you know businesses that didn't exist in our the previous generation's time so i think that you know we're in a really exciting time and we have we are not without challenges harvest actually has a, a an arm that started in the past year so-called mindset to work within higher education and with industry and leadership uh, and research to get a better grasp on the ideas of shaping the future of higher education and it's again this idea of ideas and and conversations uh, are going to be predictive of, you know, where we go and we have a say in where we go um, and working together will help us get there faster. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Do you love our podcast art? I'm actually obsessed with it. It was created for us by a very talented local artist right here in Toronto, named Claire Fang. And due to popular request, we're making it available to you. Check out our website, loveanddividends.com to get your very own custom Love and Dividends swag. So even as the host of a financially focused podcast, 
I am constantly confusing these financial terms. What I did for myself was create a handy little cheat sheet to keep everything clear. And now I'm sharing it with you. I hope it will be a helpful tool as you tune in regularly to our show. I don't love the term cheat, but I love the idea of a cheat sheet. Sign up for our mailing list at loveanddividends.com to get a free copy of my beautiful Love and Dividends Cheat Sheet emailed right to you. We've sort of touched on it, but what does wealth mean to you? It means having a lot of money and <laughs> all dollar bills. Dollar here bills. Uh, for me, I if that was your answer. I'm like, I, no one's ever said that. So I'm damn free to be like, it's a fat bank account. It's I mean, it really money. is. It's a big, big fat bank. I'm down for that. It, being financially wealthy is having a big fat bank account. Now, <laughs> it also comes down to what your expectation is, right? What you what you're going to spend your money on. And so I think wealth is really understanding what you need to sustain the lifestyle that is going to bring you uh, where you want to go. What is the the thing, the sort of, I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger, because I could have sort of capitalized on it, compounded it sooner for you. Probably RSPs, like Ooh. just a simple get our cheat sheet. I'm like, gonna make a little plug if you're not sure what that is. The cheat sheet has the terms. I remember getting a call from the bank, and they said, um, "You know, looks like you're you're making a decent living. Um, would you like to put some money towards RSPs?" And I was like, "Okay, sure. You know, Brad, what? Let's let's do it." Uh, I was living at home, you know, working part time. So, uh, and. And then I saw a pair of shoes that I thought were really beautiful. So a couple of weeks went by and I called and I was like, I would like to release the funds. And they were like, <laughs> seriously, this is, this is young Zoe. Oh no. Because so what happened? Did you release the funds? I yes. Mean- yes. I got the shoes. <laughs> I wanted to go out on the town. Beautiful yeah, high heels. For the shoes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, obviously there wasn't a lot of funds in there, but I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, it was such a silly move. And he was like, are you sure if you just hang on, like in 10 years, you could buy a house. And I'm like, no, I'm good. You know, I'm not thinking that far ahead. I rarely get embarrassed because it's also just funny and it's just, it's just a truth. Even if you had asked though, and I want to give, I mean, it sounds like the advisor was like, don't do it. But you know, it sounds like you still weren't given the right information to make the right choice um, because it is, I believe, intentionally or was, I think things are getting better and better, but it can be intentionally confusing because that does serve a lot of people. I mean, remember that someone did make money off you investing it, buying whatever product you had, the RSP, and if anything, maybe it's just high interest. Government took a big part when you divested it. I mean, Someone is making money off that ignorance. That is that is the part I find chilling. And that is why I thank you for sharing that story because that's your money that you should have. Mm-hmm. As someone who understands math, I still didn't understand finances. That's why I was like, hold on. This is something is missing because I'm good at the math part and I'm still like, what the hell's going on here? 
So. Yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, empowerment uh, and, um, and how we're educated is how we're going to mobilize, you know, a more prosperous economy, uh, an environment where people are, you know, elevating the people, everyone around them more. Um, if you're, if the pathways for success are paved a, a little clearer, then it gives, it gives learners something to look forward to, an idea of why they're learning um, and how it applies to the bigger picture in this case you know you're learning about this so that you can buy a house by the time you're 25. I mean that sounds kind of exciting and here's how so it actually exciting. would work out and this is yeah, all you need to do every month. Had actually explained it to you been like instead of these shoes five years from now you'll have enough for a down payment you can da 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 I know so important um same note, but what advice would you give for someone just starting out? Usually this question is about their, like your field of expertise. So maybe someone starting out either applying for jobs or transitioning jobs, what would be sort of your advice? It comes down to what you want to get out of the job. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're a new graduate, for example, I don't underestimate your experience. Don't underestimate your education. We all have a tendency to have imposter syndrome or to belittle um, accomplishment. So I think it's, it's good to be humble, but not to your own detriment. I was thinking that too. Someone was like, you got to make sure you're humble. I'm like, well, it's really easy to be humble when people are like, you're great. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. It's really hard to be humble when someone's like, well, the team did a really good job. The team's really doing this. And you're like, what the fuck team? Like I did that. <laughs> I think the language is speaking back to, you know, if you're trying to work in communications. Clearly communicating is not easy for anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy, more easy for some than others. <laughs> sure. But but the idea of being able to own your accomplishments, um, but also give credit to the people around you. No one is an island. Own your accomplishments. Uh, be confident in what you need out of the opportunity and, and what you bring. You know, interview the employer. I remember I had an interview. Interview with the employer is such a good one. I had By the way, employers like to be interviewed. I want to put this out there too, but I've been the interviewer enough to know I like, I don't mind being interviewed. I don't mind smart questions. It's flattering when mm -hmm. someone says, what's it like working here? You know, and you can interview them too in a way that's, that's helpful. One of my favorite interview questions I'll share as the interviewee and that I love to receive, what would, what would make someone successful in this role? I always ask it and I like to answer it because it gives it gives more clarity than the job description. It gives a bit of insight into what the employer is asking. And if I'm asked it, I go, wow, this person's already turning their mind to being not just filling the role, but they want to be a success here. Mm -hmm. that, that's who I want to hire, someone who has turned their mind to being a success in the role. Listening is, is something that is rare. I think we're all looking for Guilty. when we're going to speak next. I, I, I find myself, it's the thing that I, I dislike my, very much about myself. Sometimes I catch myself, you know, my mind is creatively inclined and it's, it's always rolling and moving and I have different ideas. So someone, a conversation can spark something and I, I get excited and I want to jump in and just, I've been trying to be more conscious of pairing back and listening because one, people like to be listened to. I know I do. It's a form of respect. Um, and the other thing is, is we all have something to learn. I had a boss once say to me, he was asking me questions and I was trying to answer and I didn't really have the answer. And he said to me, you know, Zoe, I don't expect you to know everything and have all the answers. It's okay. If you just say, I don't know, 
especially starting out, you're not going to know everything. There is a lot of respect given to people who properly use, I don't know, I want to hone in on this for a minute. I don't know is an extremely powerful tool if used right. Here would be my view of it, of when it's used right, when it's used wrong. And I've used it both properly and the wrong way. I'm guilty of of both. Everyone has. Yeah. But I would say where it's used improperly is you've just started. Someone's like, hey, can you help me file this? Can you help figure this out? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, uh, and it's sort of when it's when the tone is almost a like, don't, not my problem. Like, I don't know. And I don't need to know. That looks very different to me. So that's one way. The flip side that where I think it can be used very effectively is there's a great deal of respect to using it in a context where you do know a number of things. So as a contrast, so I think my favorite lawyers do this a lot where they're like, here's what I know. I know that if you only offer this, you could be liable this way. I know that this, what I don't know is X, Y, Z. So let's look into this or so let's find who can find that answer, or I'm going to take that back and, and look into it. And that I find the power of the I don't know is then the stuff you said you know, you actually have way more credibility for. But if the I don't know is used in the context, even of like, that's a really powerful question or like, oh, I didn't think of that. Mm -hmm. Let me dig in. Let me let me go there with you. I think that's where it's most powerful. To be clear, I don't always do this. And I still am like, I don't know. Like I've, I've, I've done that. I've done that recently. I think um, being honest and saying that, you know, I think we all have, I, I definitely have as well. Absolutely. Um, and I would say to that end that I, I love being the one in the room that doesn't know. Because then you get to learn. Because I get to learn. I, I, lo- I, I love being the one that's not the smartest in the room. It's so inspiring to be with people who are, when I started working with Orbis, I had no technology background. The number of questions I asked, you really have to dig in. You have to ask, get to the why, like, why are we doing this? What is the purpose? What is the the vision? Um, And to do that, it's, you know, questions on its own, but then it's like, and what is it? And now it's time for Money Wins. Money Wins is a way you spent, saved, or invested your money that feels like a win. Do you have a money win for us? I would say, you know, deciding to move from Toronto to Hamilton Mm. um, about almost four years now ago uh, was a win um, because not only is it an amazing city, but I was able to be a homeowner. It was very um, competitive. And even back then, you know, was it, it was uphill. We lost out on a lot of different homes. And looking back, I feel very fortunate. I think that real estate, if you are able and you are lucky to get to that place where you, uh, you find yourself able to invest in a condo or a home or, you know, you want to buy a house. And I think um, it's probably a solid investment. That's a big win. Very good money win. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Um, A future of fulfilled potential. I just love that. I want to end on that note. Yeah. Thank you for just so much wisdom. Uh, We sign off with love and dividends. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to the love and dividends podcast. 
please subscribe, share, and rate us with five shining stars on iTunes. It really helps us rise in visibility to reach more listeners like you. To find out more, check out our website, loveanddividends.com, our Instagram, at loveanddividends, or email me, leslie at loveanddividends.com. This episode was produced by Holly Dodson. Until next time, I'm Leslie Gray, signing off with Love and Dividends.